Well, we have certainly had a full Sunday morning, haven't we? Uh, one thing I wanted to note, I failed to mention uh, in, in the welcome, when I spoke about the, uh, um, the, the container to, to put uh, resources in for choices, that is found in the stairwell that goes up um, to some of our classrooms and where our student ministry is. And so that's where that's usually placed there, and there's a sign that has a little bit more instruction for you. So failed to mention that and wanted to make that clear. If you would, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We are continuing our study through this great epistle. Romans is in the New Testament, if you're visiting with us, and it is after the Gospels and Acts. So you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and you'll find Romans. And we're going to be in Romans 8, verses 26 through 30. And I invite you to follow along with me as I begin reading. Hear the word of the Lord. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This morning, we have celebrated the gift of life, um, as Joshua was Explaining, hopefully you were able to hear as we heard the uh, squirming and uh, questions and children running all through, but uh, that's the beauty of, of the joy of children, isn't it? We, we, we just dropped back some of the kids and they were all, they had had their fill. They were, they were all in a tizzy and we dropped them off in the nursery and I said, hey, we, we got them prepared for you. Here you go. They're like, thank you, Pastor Chase. Um, but no, we, we, we've certainly uh, celebrated life. We heard some of our children open up our worship service singing the God of Wow, and then, uh, and then saw many of our parents, uh, some of them new parents, um, commit to raising their children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And this, brothers and sisters, I want us to see and know that this is one of the primary ways we fulfill the Great Commission. It's not the only way, but it is primary way by which we pass on the gospel to the next generation. We raise up an, an army of, of believers that this, this church's lighthouse can shine brighter. And we are really just at the mercy of those who've gone before us, and, and, and we're just standing on their shoulders, and we're wanting to be faithful in that as well. And that's why we celebrate life this Sunday. But the things that we have celebrated this morning are things that Satan hates, doesn't he? What we've done today, Satan despises. Satan is a murderer from the beginning, and he is the father of lies. And therefore, Satan hates what God loves, and God loves those made in his image, and that includes little children. And here in America, around 18% of all babies born are murdered through abortion. 
from the research or the latest research I found, this amounts to approximately half a million babies murdered every year. That's the ones that are documented. Worldwide, the, the data is just staggering. It's 40 to 50 million little children murdered. The murder of babies has been one of Satan's oldest tactics against humanity. We think of Pharaoh's plan to regulate the population of Israel in, in the midst of Egypt. And Pharaoh, fittingly, would have the serpent's head on his ha- or hat on his head, representing the kingdoms of this world. And what did he do? He had every male child that was born murdered by throwing them into the river. We think of the deception of idolatry which led Israel to join in with the surrounding nations in offering their children in sacrifices to the burning hands of Moloch, an idol that they would heat up from its bottom until its hands were hot, and they would sacrifice their children. Or even the evil of Herod the Great, who when he heard that the king of the Jews would be born in Bethlehem, could not stand the thought that there would be a rival to him. And imposing God's ways, he thought he could kill the Messiah. And so he ordered that in the town of Bethlehem, that a slaughter would occur for every male child that's been, who's two years or younger. When we think about the evils of this world, even, even when we just talk about the awful nature of abortion, How do we reconcile this with what we read in Romans 8? Namely, that all things work together for good. Really, Paul? Are you aware of what's going on in the world? Are you aware of the suffering that I endured? Are you completely aloof? All things work together for good? How can we find hope in these world in these words when such evil readily abounds? How can we find hope in these words when we experience the effects of evil and suffering in our lives? I want us to see from this passage it actually gives us confidence. I want us to really cherish these words if you haven't already. These are some of the most cherished words in Scripture for the hurting believer. And I want us to see that it gives us confidence in the face of evil and suffering that our hope of glory, that's what we've been looking at since chapter 5 of Romans, our hope of glory is sure. We're not going to be disappointed. We're not going to be put to shame. This passage gives us confidence. And and I want to just turn briefly to Romans 5, just to keep us in context and see where we've been and where we're going. But this passage makes Romans 5 make sense, okay? Romans 5, 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in and our sufferings. The only way that makes sense is if we understand Romans 8. 
that all things work together for good. Brothers and sisters, the hope of this passage is built on the foundation of God's sovereign will. We heard our our children at the very beginning uh, answer a catechism question about God's providence, and we just heard them explain that, and and hopefully they understand what that means, but but this is what we're seeing in this text, that God is providential, He's sovereign. And what we're going to see is that He's sovereign over all things to bring about our redemption, our resurrection, as we saw last Sunday, in Christ through suffering. If you're in Romans 8, look at verse 16, or the end of verse 6, 17, excuse me. That we're children, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him. There's that. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. Our glorification, our good, our joy, our redemption is somehow linked with the sufferings of this world. And we can rejoice in them because we know that they have a purpose. They have a purpose. So this morning, I want to bolster our hope with two realities, This, okay? I want to bolster our hope with the two realities of God's will, of God's sovereignty. And the first is that the Holy Spirit, we're going to see, intercedes on our behalf according to God's will. Intercedes for us. And number two, that all things work according to God's will, Okay? So the Spirit intercedes according to God's will. That's what we see here in verse 26 and 27. And we're introduced here to the Spirit's work in preserving the life of the believer. We believe that that the believer, those who are truly converted, those who have truly experienced the Holy Spirit, have been sealed and that their inheritance is a guarantee. That no one will fall away, that no one can snatch us out of His hand. Well, how does that happen? Well, this is the Spirit's work in our lives. And specifically, Paul says that the Spirit conforms our longings, we're going to see, our desires to His sovereign will. This is what Paul means when he says the Spirit, verse 26, helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Well, what's our weakness? Well, he spells it out for us. He says, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Do you experience that tension in your prayers? When you're experiencing suffering or when you see the evils of this world, do you, do you have the tension and, and say, Lord, I don't, I don't know what to pray for. I don't know how to pray in this instance. Maybe when you have lost a, a, a loved one, and, and you, you long so badly for them to be back. And you, you pray, Lord, could you please let's have a Lazarus experience here and raise them? But you, you know that that's not what God's probably going to do. Or someone close to you and their family member dies and, and, and you don't know where they are, they don't know where they stand with the Lord and, and so you don't really know how to pray? Or do you ever struggle when someone's diagnosed with cancer or some other disease and do I pray for healing or, or, or something else? Is the Lord at work here? And, and maybe you struggle? 
Or even, have you thought about with your own sin and your own temptations and your own lusts? And maybe you've cried out, Lord, take this sin away from me. But yet you see that he hasn't done that. And so what, what am I supposed to be praying for? How do, I, how do I address this sin in my life? And so being falling humans, we do not know what to pray because we do not know God's sovereign will. At least in the details. We know in general what God is accomplishing. We know the big story. But we aren't, all, we aren't hardly ever privy to what God is doing in our lives in every detail, do we? We're not given that knowledge. However, what we read here is that one of the Spirit's works in our lives is to intercede on our behalf because we don't know what to pray. And so we read that the Spirit in Himself intercedes for us with groanings, He says, too deep for words. We've already seen the groaning of the creation last week and then our own groaning. But now He speaks of the Spirit, in a sense, groaning within us. Well, what's he talking about here? Well, some have understood this verse to support the idea of uh, speaking in tongues or, or experiencing a private prayer language. However, I don't, I don't think that's what Paul is speaking about. We're going to dive into those issues. Some of you have asked me. We're going to dive into some of those issues of, of, of spiritual gifts and, and what gifts are operative or normative for today when we get to Romans chapter 12. But for now, I just want to give you two reasons in case you've looked at this text and wondered what is this talking about or you've, you've heard that it, it's talking about tongues. I want to give you two reasons why that can't be the case. First, notice that these groanings are too deep for words. They're unspeakable. They're, they're, they're inaudible words. They're like the groans of the creation. You don't hear the creation groaning. It's talking about something internal. They're inaudible. Tongues are audible. Secondly, tongues are, are a known language that's not known to the individual speaking them, but they're a known language. This is often spoken of its gibberish. It's things that are uh, an angelic tongue or a, uh, uh, something that no one can decipher. Well, that's never the, uh, the case in the Scriptures. But secondly, and more significantly here, is that the Spirit's work here in verses 26 and 27 is for every believer. This is to comfort you. That the Spirit intercedes on behalf of who? The saints. That's not some special class of Christian, by the way. That's everybody who's been bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's every person who's ever believed. They're the saints. You are the saints. And the Spirit intercedes on behalf of of them. That's everybody. But when we look at how Paul treats that topic in, in 1 Corinthians 12, not everyone's gifted with that gift. And so that would totally undermine Paul's uh, effort of bringing comfort to us, saying, well, the Spirit only intercedes for some of you. Only if you've got that gift. That's not what he's getting at at all. And so these groanings are not some ecstatic experience of the Spirit where somebody goes into a trance and begins communicating with God. 
Rather, it's unspeakable longings to do and know God's will. It's the Spirit's work in our life, I want us to see, bringing within us longings for godliness, for God's will to be done. To set our minds, Romans 8, 5, on the things of the Spirit. That is, the things of God. And to do so even when we don't comprehend what God's will is in the midst of our suffering. I mean, you've been there. Maybe I've spoken to some of us. We've, we've gone through seasons of suffering where we were praying, Lord, take this away from me. But now then we're on the other side of it. We've looked back and we've seen what the Lord was doing. And we say, I'm so glad he didn't do that. I can even look back in my own testimony. And I can see seasons where I didn't know the Lord. And I was living in sin. And the Lord intended those consequences of living in sin to break me so that when I would hear the gospel, I would believe. I was completely unaware and, and unconcerned with the will of God at that point. And that's only probably a, a glimmer of what God was doing that I, I'm even aware of. And so what Paul is talking about here is that the Spirit helps us in our weakness that we, when we don't understand what God is doing in every detail. It's in these times, verse 27, that our God, he says, who searches our hearts, he knows the mind of the Spirit who's in our hearts and is interceding for us. What, what is that intercession? And why does that matter? What I think he's talking about here is there's an intimacy between God, our Heavenly Father, and us, and the link is the Holy Spirit who now dwells in our hearts. And so even though when we're praying in the midst of our suffering and concern and we look at the evils of the world, He searches our hearts and He knows the longings that we, we have. And even though we don't maybe understand what's going on now, those longings are being translated to the Father that His will be done. And not only that, His will is then being worked in us conforming our desires to him. So when we do not know how to pray, we're actually still praying your will be done because the Spirit's work. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even if we don't know what to pray. And so we can be confident that when we're coming to the Lord, he hears us. Even when we are like a child, not knowing what we're asking for sometimes. Unaware of what God is doing, but He knows our hearts, He knows uh, our love for Him, and these are the, 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 the fruits of the Spirit welling up in us. So does this mean that we don't need to pray then? <laughs> well, if you don't know what to pray for, then you don't have to pray. Is that what Paul's getting at? Certainly not. The point is, is that our deep longings and groanings in our prayer are crying out to God for mercy. It's actually our prayers of groaning for the redemption of our body, verse 23. When we see these things and we're longing for relief and we're turning to our Heavenly Father, that is the Spirit working in us, drawing us to our Heavenly Father who already knows what our needs are. 
and we just might not know how to express it. But he knows the Spirit's mind who's in us, who's putting desires in our heart for eternal things. So what does this look like? Well, Paul's already talked about being led by the Spirit. Verse 13. If you're led by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body. And that, that looks like walking in, in God's Word and being nourished and, and filled with the Spirit. But Paul's going to put some feet on this when we get to Romans chapter 12. Just turn there really quickly. But this is the Spirit's work in us. Just put in a different way. Romans 12 too. If you've, you've grown up in the church, you're familiar with this verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Brothers and sisters, you, if you know the Lord, you have God's Spirit dwelling in you who is giving you new thoughts, new desires. And yes, we are all in process, but He is conforming us into His image. And as that process is going, we are more and more, even though we don't know all the details, we are more and more in tune with God's will. And so as we grow as Christians, our prayers... Our prayers are more like Jesus' prayers. Lord, please take this cup from me, but not my will be done but yours. And we can begin to know, Lord, I don't know how to pray in this moment, but what I am praying for is that your will will be done. And we can be confident that it is. That's what he's doing. That's what he's encouraging us with. That when we go to the Father, our prayers matter. And so if you're suffering, if you are burdened with, with guilt and sin and, and trial, are you going to your heavenly Father? Because the Spirit is drawing you to Him. That's what He's talking about here. And so practically, this means that our prayers are effective to bring about God's will in our lives. We're going to look at what that is. And though we do not know how God's will is being carried out, we know it is. You understand that? Even though we do not know how it's being carried out, we can have confidence that it is, no matter what we see. And so when we're pleading with the Lord over sinful temptations, we, like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, can, say, can find rest when the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. You know that story? Paul had a, a thorn in the flesh, he called it. We, we, we're not really sure what that is, if it was a physical ailment or if it was a false teachers plaguing him or if it was sin that he was struggling with. But whatever it was, it was a messenger of Satan, he categorized. It wasn't good. And he went to the Lord three times, pleaded with him, take this from me. And the answer is no. My grace is sufficient for you. Why in the world would the Lord do that? Well, Paul says so that I would not become prideful. Have you ever thought about that? The Lord is more concerned with your holiness than he is about your comfort. And even the sins that plague us, and, and each of us have certain propensity to certain sins in others, if you never struggled, you'd never need him. 
Why do you need the comforter if you are already in comfort? If your hope is seen, well, then what do you hope for? This is kind of comical. I don't know if you all been keeping up with the Bitcoin information stuff. You, you might not know what that is. It's a currency that's digital or you can't have it in your hand. And Lori's looking at me like, it's stupid. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I remember hearing about this five years ago. It's like 10 cents. And I'm kind of techie and I like that stuff. And I thought, I should just buy like 100 of these in case, you know, just it might be useful one day. And I've actually not kept up with it all until this Christmas, and her brother is, is kind of the expert in it. And then I looked at what it was uh, selling for, and I was like, oh, so if I had 100 of these when they were 10 cents each, it's now $20,000 worth uh, for each Bitcoin. <laughs> um, I would be pretty loaded <laughs> if I had just, you know, spent a few bucks five years ago. And Sarah and I were talking, and it's like, man, we'd be millionaires. And I said, you know what? And I said, all, all joking aside, we wouldn't depend on the Lord if we had that. I'm so glad we, we wouldn't think we need him. We, we would fall into the deception of riches. We wouldn't purposely do it, but we, we'd just say, I don't need you. I wouldn't be going to him for my needs. We don't understand. All I can say now is, Lord, let my mind drift so I would not get caught up in that. And you could lose your money the next day, too. So, um, so why can we find rest in the work of the Spirit interceding on us, for us? Because He's e interceding according to God's will. God's purposes. He's working in our heart to align us with His purposes and, and producing in us longings that will only be satisfied in the Lord. Ultimately, what we saw last Sunday, if you were with us, and a new creation, or the resurrection of our body, the, the revealing of the sons of God. So why is this comforting? Well, because all things are working according to God's will. That's what Paul wants us to see in verses 28 through 30. Here we embark upon some of the most profound and comforting truths for the believer of Christ. Yet sadly, many Christians have not experienced the blessedness of these truths because they've stumbled over the following verses. Verses 29 through 30. Over the years, I've been asked whether I preach that predestination stuff. Or it's sometimes couched in, are you one of those Calvinists? As if predestination is some heretical term never to be uttered. Or that a guy 500 years ago invented the doctrine. And usually this is how I respond. And, and, and so some of you might be nervous. You looked at the scripture and, you, and you're uncomfortable with those words. Wondering, uh-oh, what's, what's he going to do today? Here's how I respond. And, and those of you who've been with us, and I hope that I've shown faithfulness over the years, I want to preach the scripture. I don't care what label you put on it. I really don't care. If it's Calvinism, it's Calvinism. I want to be biblical. And yes, 
when God's word speaks of predestination. It's right here. It's actually lots of places. I'm not going to ignore it, try to explain it away, pretend it's not there. We're going we're gonna to see what the Lord has for us. But in the same way, when, when God's word is emphasizing man's responsibility to choose whom this, on this day whom you will serve, we're not going to ignore that either and pretend it, it isn't there. These are two truths that aren't at odds with one another. As as Spurgeon says, these are two friends that don't need to be reconciled. These things are compatible with one another, even if we don't understand how it works. And I venture to say none of us do. But you can't just say, well, in order for me to understand it, I've got to eliminate one of them. And so what we see is that in Scripture... Humans do what they want to do. And in so doing, they accomplish the will of God. And so these verses teach us that God is not going to fit in our man-sized box. Just not. And over the next few months, we're going to be... I mean, this is kind of like we're entering the, the, the weightier areas of, of the Bible. And if you've ever been out in the ocean and, you, and, and you're, you're kind of going, you think you've got it, and then maybe a, a, a little bit more wave came and, and, and it goes over your head and you realize, whoa, actually the depth's a little bit more than I realized. Um, it's just preparing you for there's, we're going down deeper. And the sandbar doesn't come, just so you know, till chapter 12. There's mystery in these doctrines. There's mystery. And our role is not to assess, but to submit. We're here to stand in awe that He is God and we are mere men and women. But here's what I want us to see today. No matter where you think you land on these issues, or if you're sitting here today, I have no idea what you're talking about. This is good news. Paul doesn't even defend it here. Because it's good news. That God is in control. How else could he say all things work together for good if God is not sovereign over everything? If in your suffering and in the evil that you experience, if he's not in control of it, how can, he, how can these words bring you any comfort? And so all things here don't just refer to the good things of life, but the suffering in this life. That's the whole context of this passage. And where we saw last week, verse 18, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. How can he say that with a straight face? Because we know that all things work together for good. The present sufferings are working for my good. That's what he's saying. So what's the good that Paul's referring to here? He's not talking about the good of this world. Some people have interpreted this as just saying, well, something bad happened today, but I know it's ultimately going to kind of turn out good for me today. That's not really what he's talking about. It's far better than that, far more lasting good than that. It's not something that we see right now, verse 25. It's the revealing of the sons of God, verse 19. That's what he's talking about. That's the good. 
It's the new creation, verse 21. It's our resurrection from the dead, verse 23. And it's what he's going to get to here in our passage, our glorification. That's the good that is being worked through all things. And so the promise is for not everybody. Notice he qualifies it. For those who love God. Well, who are those? Well, he tells us those who are called according to his purpose. This is where the sovereignty issue starts to press in. That word purpose could be translated will, those according to his will. What's God's purpose? What's God's will? What's he trying to accomplish? This is big picture will. It's the good that all things are working together for. So I know we're talking in circles, but I'm wanting you to show he's just saying the same things in different ways. And then Paul's going to go into here in more explicit detail on how God has sovereignly worked his purpose and will in us. How has he done this? Showing how from before time began and until eternity future, God has been sovereign over all things for your good. And it's not just you individually, although it affects me individually, it is our good. The church, his people. And so, yes, you know, this term can be abused. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He does. So how do I know that? Well, Paul tells us. Look at verse 29. He foreknew you. He foreknew you. Now this, I don't believe, is talking about foreknowledge in the sense of knowing what we're going to do beforehand and God uh, responding accordingly. How some have tried to kind of suck the power out of this text. I don't think intentionally, but struggling. Well, God just looked down the corridors of time and he saw who all was going to obey him. And then, all right, let's set this plan in motion. And, and in all the end, it may you know, he can talk about sovereignty and choosing and election and predestination. But really, this all was just him having foreknowledge. And it should be said that that term right here, foreknowledge, it can mean that. I mean, it can, and sometimes in Scripture it does. Here's just an example in 2 Peter 3.17. Peter says to them, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with error of lawlessness. He'd warn them of something. So, so no, I'm telling you something that's going to happen, and you know it beforehand, so act accordingly. It can be used in that sense. But more often in Scripture, it's used in a covenantal sense, whereby God sets his covenant love upon someone, where he chooses that person. I'll give an example. Abraham. This is Genesis 18, 19. Listen to what we read here. For I have chosen him. That word chosen is I've known him. It's not talking about an intellectual, I, 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 I got to meet Abraham today. He said he, he said his love, his covenant love on him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. This is the covenant of Abraham by which he's going to bless the world. He didn't do that with everybody. He did that through Abraham. There's a specificity to this knowing. In Amos 3.2, the Lord says of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. 
Well, clearly, it's not saying that he's ignorant of every other nation upon the face of the earth. No, he knows Israel in a unique way. He knows them with his covenantal love. He's entered a covenant with them. Paul picks up this language in Romans 11 too. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And that's important for us to see. Okay, that's how he's using that term because this is what he's doing in Romans 8. He's saying, if you are in Christ, all the promises of the Old Testament of those whom he foreknew are yours because he's foreknown you. That's going to presuppose a question that we get to in Romans 9. Okay, then what about Israel? If the, if, if the church is receiving all these promises, what about Israel whom he foreknew? Is there any hope for them? Why are they rejecting Christ? He's going to answer that. But he's picking up on these terms to say, God has set his covenant love on you. In Ephesians 1, he says, he chose you. That's how it can also be translated. In a different way, but in this intimate sense, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 through 25, the text says of Joseph, that he knew her not until the child was born. Does that mean he had no idea who Mary was? No. He's talking about that intimacy. She was a virgin. He didn't know her. What Paul's saying here is that those whom God foreknew, those whom he has set his covenant love upon, notice what he says, he also predestined. This term means to determine beforehand, to preordain. And God has predetermined that those whom he set his covenant love on will what? Look here. To be conformed to the image of his son. Here's eternal security right there, brothers and sisters. God has set his love upon you, and he has predetermined that you will be conformed to the image of his son. It will happen. That's his will. That's the good that all things are working for. In order that, this is also a purpose so that Christ should be the firstborn among many brethren, that he would be preeminent. And again, that, that term firstborn, I don't have time to unpack that, is a covenantal term. That's why in Egypt he kills the firstborn son. There's significance there. In Israel, you are my firstborn son. Well, well Christ is his Firstborn, not a created being, he is preeminent. He shares a special relationship. And when we are related to Christ in, through faith, well, we become his brothers and sisters. And so all the promises to the firstborn become ours. And so there's a purpose here that, that God is going to conform us to the image of his son. That is the image of God that was marred when Adam fell in the garden and has been blurred and it is not totally lost but it is not what it should be it is going to be restored and he's going to do that in you that is the ultimate good that he's working in us and this is going to occur at the resurrection when we receive our adoption and so just as God has predestined the wicked to crucify Jesus on the cross to accomplish his purposes, Acts 4. So God has predestined the events in your life to work for his purposes. I want you to see that. Just, just flip over to one book over, 
This is Acts, so... Acts chapter 4, this is the church praying. Luke's recording for us, and it's just interesting how they pray. And Peter actually preaches the same thing in, on Pentecost, Pentecost next, too. But in Acts 4, 28, actually, let's just go to verse 27. Listen to how they're praying, what they are finding hope in. For truly, this is after persecution has happened, Peter and John have been arrested. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had what? Had predestined to take place. So if you're wrestling with this, I'm wrestling with this. Was it God's will for people to murder? Is it God's will for people to murder? Well, no. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. Okay, I think that's right. Was it God's will that people murder his son? Yes, it was. And oftentimes, we, we, don't, we can look back and see, okay, that makes sense. This great wickedness, this great suffering actually led to the salvation of the world. But we are often like Peter before the event has occurred. And when Jesus says, I must be lifted up, I'm going to die. You know what Peter says? No, that will never happen. That'll never happen. And Jesus gives the strongest rebuke he ever gives to any of his disciples in that moment. He says, get behind me, Satan. You have set your mind on the things of man and not the things of God. Peter couldn't comprehend the will of God in that moment. How could it possibly be good that our king, our Messiah, would be crucified? That couldn't make any sense. Oh, but after the fact it did. Because they didn't have the whole story. And so in the same way that God's purposes were worked in the cross, you can see it working that's how we live by faith in the cross of Christ. We know that this present suffering does not compare, does not, is not counted worthy to the glory that's going to be revealed. We're following the pattern of Christ, which is suffering, death, and resurrection. So God has predestined the events in your life to work for His purpose. This is God's sovereign will working itself out in history. That's what's happening here. Four news prior to time. Predestines now the events of history working. I think I have time to give you one more illustration of this. You're familiar with Joseph and his brothers in, in the book of Exodus. And you know his brothers, they plotted to, actually, they wanted to kill him, but Reuben hey guys, I'm, I'm having cold feet. Let's just throw them in a, in a well and sell them. Actually, he, he didn't say sell them. He just, let's put them in a well. And he went off and they're like, well, let's sell them. Let's make some money off this guy. And at the end of that whole story, the evil that they did, I mean, this, they, they told their dad, your son's dead by taking his coat, ripping it, and dipping it in goat's blood and saying a lion must have eaten him or a ravenous beast. At the end of the story, 
we get to see that something else was at work in their evil. Genesis 50, verse 18, just listen. His brothers came to him and fell down before him, that's to Joseph, and said, Behold, we're your servants, because he's now prominent. It's the right hand of Pharaoh. They're like, uh-oh, now that our father's da- dead, he's going to kill us for what we did to him. But notice Joseph is aware now of some greater things going on. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, now this is crucial, verse 20, you meant evil against me. You did what you wanted to do, and it was evil. There's human responsibility. They're culpable. You did evil. But God meant it for good. It's just a flip verse. It's it's not saying that God then turned it into good. It's all right. It's all covered. No, you were meaning it for evil, but God had a purpose, and he meant it for good. And the good's not that Joseph is at the right hand of Pharaoh. That's a side benefit. The good was, though, that he may bring about many people and keep them alive as they are today, the nation of Israel whom he foreknew. All this was about a bigger plan of preserving the children of Abraham so they would be fruitful and multiply, and ultimately, uh, years down the road, the Messiah would come. You, you weren't even thinking about the things of God. You were just thinking about killing me. But God had a far bigger plan involved. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so those, back in Romans 8, whom he's predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This, he picks this up in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he picks up the link. This is an unbreakable link, by the way. Those whom he foreknew will be in the end of this chain. He also called. He also called. Now, this calling cannot refer to the general call of all people to believe the gospel, although we we do. We invite all people, come, believe in Christ. But that's not what this call is. This is an effective call. Because as we're going to see, all those who are called are what? They're justified. They're forgiven. Well, not everybody we preach the gospel to and call to believe believes and is forgiven. So this call is very specific. This is the moment in time by which the Holy Spirit regenerates the believer's heart, opens up their eyes, opens up their ears, so they would believe in Jesus and confess Him as Lord. This is the, this is the behind the scenes. Why do you believe? Because He called you. He summoned you. That's what He's saying. He predestined all the events in your life so that when the call comes, which is someone preaching the gospel to you, that it's effective. And it works. That's why you believed. But you wanted to believe. There's human responsibility, though, too. You believe because you love Jesus. And anyone who believes can come to him. There's not going to be anybody in hell who said, I wanted to believe in Jesus, but I wasn't called. That doesn't, that's not how it works. Or I wanted to be in Jesus, but I wasn't elect. That's, that's not how it works. And by the way, I know I'm going off here, but... In hell, does it just magically convert you to love Jesus in which you wanted him? You're left to yourself in the fullness of your sin and his fury. You'll actually hate him more. 
No one is going to be in hell who wanted to be with Jesus. No one. So those whom he called, he says, he also justified. That is, he declared their sins forgiven and counts them as righteous in Christ. And so if you've been justified, he's declared you righteous to Christ, what also happens? Finally, for those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's God's will for your life. This is the good that all things are working for so that you would be conformed to the image of Jesus and you'll be resurrected from the dead and enjoy the new creation. God's sovereign work, his will that he has purposed before time is being worked out even now and ultimately will be complete. So why do we find hope in this passage even in the face of evil and suffering in the world? Because God's spirit dwells in us and is working to conform us to his will. And God's will is being accomplished in everything for our good, ensuring that we will experience the hope of glory. And this is where we're going to come to next Sunday. Verse 31. Well, what should we say to these things? What should you say to these things? Oh, he's preaching that Calvinism. No, that should not be what you should say. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? If he's in control, what do I fear? He's going to work his will in my life, and I can rejoice in the sufferings knowing that they are conforming to his image. We can carry about the business of the work of the gospel no matter what's going on in this world because it's working all things to the good. If you're here today and you're visiting, maybe you came to see a grandchild or a friend's children here, or maybe you just walked in and you're like, hey, this was an interesting Sunday. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you see your need for a Savior, and you find yourself in this world without God and hope, you can come to know Him today. You just have to repent and believe the good news that Jesus died according to the plan of God so that your sins may be forgiven and that you may be adopted child of his. That's the good news. Let's, let's pray and then let's sing a final song. Dear Lord, these are weighty truths. And Lord, I pray that they've rung sweet to our hearts. They've given us hope for today and tomorrow. And, and Lord, I, even if we can't get our minds around them, and, and surely none of us have, Lord, let us just bask in your glory. May we, as the kids sang, say, wow. And Lord, we ask that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we find our confidence that right now the Spirit is interceding on our behalf and we can be sure that that will be done. We say these things with hopeful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, let's stand and let's sing Our Hope is Alive.